past, the sleeping city, the river sweeps. Along its left bank, the old canal creeps. I did not intend that to be poetry, although the scene is poetic, somberly, gruesomely poetic, like the poems of Poe. Too well I know it, too often have I walked over the grass-grown path beside the reflections of black trees and tumble-down shacks and distant factory chimneys and the sluggish waters that move so slowly and cease to move at all. I shall be called mad, and I shall be a suicide. I shall take no pains to cover up my trail or to hide the thing that I shall do. What will it matter afterward what they say of me? If they knew the truth, if they could vision, even dimly, the beings with whom I have consorted, if the faintest realization might be theirs of the thing I am becoming, and of the fate from which I am saving their city, then they would call me a great hero. But it does not matter what they call me. As I have said before, let me write down the things I am about to write down and let them be taken as they will be taken for the last ravings of a madman. The city will be in mourning for the thing I shall have done, but its mourning will be of no consequence beside that other fate from which I shall have saved it. HPPodcraft.com Those were the first few paragraphs of The Canal by Everell Whirl, an author who haunted the pages of Weird Tales for decades and who is kicking off our month on Creature Features here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're here at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. The reader we heard at the top is my old friend, Carrie Getz. This story, The Canal, it was one of H.P. Lovecraft's favorite stories. In the July 1930 issue of Weird Tales, editor Farnsworth Wright wrote, H.P. Lovecraft has gone through his file of weird tales from the beginning, i.e. 1923, and has picked out the following stories as having the greatest amount of truly cosmic horror and macabre convincingness. Beyond the Door by Paul Sutter, The Nightwire by H.F. Arnold, both of which we've just covered, mm-hmm. The Canal by Everell Whirl, Bells of Oceana by Arthur J. Burks, The Floor Above by M.L. Humphreys, and In Admonson's Tent by John Martin Leahy. We'll actually be covering those other stories as well in the coming months, so yes. look out for that. I originally grabbed this tale from, uh, I mean, I found a free version online like we usually do. Mm-hmm. I pasted it into our notes to read, but luckily you and I both picked up H.P. Lovecraft's favorite weird tales, which is an anthology edited by Douglas A. Anderson. And he introduces the story by writing, Everill Whirl Murphy wrote under her maiden name, publishing in Weird Tales from 1926 through 54. The Canal was one of her earliest, appearing in the December 1927 issue. It is worth noting here that when The Canal was reprinted by August Derleth in his anthology The Sleeping in the Dead from 1947, the ending was shortened and simplified, making for a less effective and less horrific tale. The version reprinted here is the earlier one, the only one that H.P. Lovecraft knew. If you found this story online, you most likely got the crappy ending. It's so crappy, too. It's not just the ending, in fact. In in our opening reading, that whole paragraph about how I shall be a suicide and I don't care what people think about it, Mm -hmm. Durleth cut that whole paragraph because otherwise his terrible ending to the story wouldn't work. So that wasn't even in there. And I think Anderson in that intro is being really kind by saying he shortened and simplified the ending. He didn't just cut. He actually rewrote the ending. And I know he rewrote it because of the language he used and the 
terrible clunkiness of it, which we'll eventually get to. Well, he rewrote other parts. I mean, there's things that I'm going to quote on the show that were powerful and that he freaking totally undercut. Yep. I was trying to think of an analogy for how he ruined the story with that bad ending. It's almost as if they brought in like Tommy Wiseau to write and direct the last season of Game (laughs) of Thrones. (laughs) <laughs> Game of Thrones? Just, yeah, just suddenly switch it out. So the season coming up, it's it's all Wiseau and no George R.R. R. Oh, Martin. But God. then I was kind of thinking about that some more, and I'm like, you know what? That's a bad analogy because I actually that actually might be really entertaining if Tommy Wiseau <laughs> came in and did. <laughs> You're tearing me apart, Cersei! <laughs> exactly. I did not hit I did not. Oh, hi, Stark. <laughs> Everybody betray me. I don't have a friend in the world. I guess we can try and come up with a better analogy for Durleth's nonsense once we get through this story and compare the endings. But first, let's hear more about this author. It's her first appearance on the show. Everell Worrell Murphy was born in Nebraska in 1893. She traveled around a lot with her parents who were chasing work. Her daughter, Jean Eileen Murphy, wrote a biography for her in the first edition of Robert Weinberg's Weird Tales Collector in 1977, within which it says she lived with her family in Nebraska, Iowa, Montana, Oregon, Guam, Washington, D.C., and finally Arlington, Virginia. So she was all over the place. Yeah. Uh, Also, she was born at the witching hour, one minute after midnight on November 3rd, 1893, the day after the Day of the Dead, kind of like destined to work in the weird and and fantastic. (laughs) Sure. That's the way it goes. She eventually went to college at uh, George Washington University and then the University of California, Berkeley, where she studied music, voice, literature, and psychology. She ended up getting a job with the U.S. government as a secretary and stenographer. She married Joseph Murphy in 1926 and then started getting work published. She wrote for the Pulps, having about 19 stories published. She made the cover of Weird Tales three times, uh, starting with the September 1926 story, The Bird of Space, which is pretty good considering this was the first year she was published in Weird Tales to get the cover. Her last appearance was in the March 1954 issue, only a few months before Weird Tales folded as a magazine. Mm. So she had one of the longest involvements with Weird Tales of all their regular writers. Yeah, this story, The Canal, was one of her earliest, and it was published in Weird Tales in 1927. She also used the pen name Larive Monet. Larive or Larive. I, I couldn't. I wasn't sure how to pronounce it, and I kept looking at it, thinking, "Is this written wrong?" And then I suddenly realized, "Oh, that's just her first name backwards." <laughs> Lirave or Lirive is Everell backwards. <laughs> it is Lirive Monet. Totally sounds like a teenager making up a vampire name for their you know fiction. <laughs> they're taking a crack at. I, and I thought, well, that must be how we all generate our vampire names, right? You take your first name and you make it backwards, and then the last name is your favorite artist. So she's Lirive Monet. I would be Doc Renoir. Oh, that's pretty good. Doc Renoir, the vampire. That would make me Surik Newton-John. <laughs> Everell Worrell was also published in Ghost <laughs> Stories, Mystic Magazine, and a few others. This story was adapted for television in Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Yes, and that is significant for one very big reason, which I'm surprised you of all people did not point out. That episode was called Death on a Barge, and it was Leonard Nimoy's directorial debut. What? In uh, 1977. And the young woman was played by Leslie Ann Warren, uh, who was nominated for Academy Award later for Best Supporting Actress for Victor Victoria in 1982. Yeah. Nimoy, of course, would go on to fall asleep in the backseat of a car next to friend of the show, Matt Barisi. (laughs) Barisi. Barisi. (laughs) Barisi. And if you were a subscriber to the show and you listened to our bonus content back in August, you know that Nimoy can also make four smoke bubbles come out of a magic hat. True. Or he could before he passed away, of course. Yes, well, yeah. Yeah, of Nimoy, I can say only this. Of all the smoke bubbles I have encountered in my travels, his were the most 
human. <laughs> Everell Worrell died in 1969 at the age of 76. She left behind a legacy of impressive storytelling. However, her smoke bubble abilities are unknown. Yeah. As of this time, I think. Hopefully, as a result of the show, more is uncovered about her. But uh, let's get our little capes on. Maybe maybe light that gargoyle candle. Chris, you might want to put on that little crushed velvet number. I know you've been saving. Oh, I have been. For a special goth vampire occasion. This is it. Let's talk about the uh, masterpiece, The Canal. Our story begins with a fella, this guy Morton, who is recounting something horrible that has happened to him. And he knows that we'll doubt his sanity in the telling of the story. He has consorted with some sort of strange beings and he's becoming something else and and he's going to commit suicide. He tells us right off the bat. He explains how he's new to this area, having only lived in the city for a month or so. He moved because of work. He's a solitary kind of guy, doesn't make friends easily. Durleth made another huge cut here, the very part that Lovecraft would have related to. It says, I've always had a taste for nocturnal prowling. We as a race have grown too intelligent to take seriously any of the old instinctive fears that preserved us through preceding generations. Few of my acquaintance, few in the whole city here, would care to ramble at midnight over the grass-grown path I have spoken of, not because they would fear to do so, but because such things are not being done. Well, it is dangerous to differ individually from one's fellows, and the fears that guarded the race in the dawn of time and through the centuries were real fears, founded on reality. One of his work buddies invites him camping. There's this place just out of town near the woods, but also not far from a canal. Canals often run next to rivers, and that's the case here. Mort and his buddy, his name's Barrett, take a, a boat down to the spot, and then they camp. There's lots of fires and tents, and people are playing music. It's nice. Yeah, it's on the other side of the river away from the canal. All this doesn't really interest Mort. He likes the creepy things. He's interested in the canal and the shantytown. But he keeps that to himself, and he's kind of bored with the whole camping trip. Mm. Come Monday, however, he goes to work, he goes home, he sleeps for a bit, and he wakes up around midnight, which is kind of the natural time for him to wake up because he's a night creeper. He likes wandering around at night just like Lovecraft did. He drives out to the canal area, parks his car, and walks over to the canal. Now, it's very dark, but the city lights give him some visibility. Across the canal now, as I walked upstream at a swinging pace, the miserable shacks where miserable people lived seemed to march with me and then fell behind. And then this is the line that Durleth cut. They looked like places in which murders might be committed. Every one of them. <laughs> and I, I'm not kidding. When I read this story, that was my favorite sentence in the whole yep. piece because who hasn't had that feeling when you see a place and you go, oh man, something bad went down in there. Oh yeah. It articulates everything about that feeling you get when you see a haunted spot. Mm-hmm. Why did he cut that? Uh, it didn't even, uh, he left the rest of the paragraph there. So it didn't make sense to me. Well, Mort, he savors this urban decay, these feelings of death. He walks past the shacks and further along the canal until it's just woods. And he says he doesn't really know fear. The things that people fear, he takes delight in. A graveyard at night was to me a charming place for a stroll and meditation. Mort feels a chill and it's a warm night and he's been sweating a bit because he's walking a a quick pace. Uh, So the breeze feels very cold on his wet skin and he feels the hairs on his neck stand up and it's really, really dark. But he makes out an abandoned boat, a barge, half sunken in the water in the middle of the canal. Now sitting on the roof of the aft cabin is this young woman with a very beautiful heart-shaped face. Yeah, she's a white-clad figure. It's hard for him to see her very well. Her eyes reflect like a cat's eyes when she looks at him with a hint of red into them. And the more he looks at her, the more clear she becomes. He speaks to her saying, hello, who's there? Are you lost or marooned? Can I help? She says, you can stay and talk a while if you will. I am lonely, but not lost. I live here. 
And then she says, my father lives here with me, but he's deaf and he sleeps soundly. It says, did the night wind blow still colder as though it came to us from some unseen frozen sea? Or was there something in her tone that chilled me, even as a strange attraction drew me toward her? And I love this idea that around the ship and specifically around her, there's this strange cold wind, Mm -hmm. almost like she's generating it. He has the super hots for her. It sounds like he's sexually excited by her. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. overt in the writing, but it's, it's pretty much there. Yeah. He says that he's not really into love and girls and all that mushy stuff. Give him a moldy old tomb any old day of the week. But this girl, there's something about her. He wants to kiss her, to hold her. He's overcome with his lust. He says to her, I can come over to you. I don't mind getting wet. It's a warm night. So like he's willing to go in this disgusting canal to just be close to her, like with the hopes of hooking up with her. Like that's how strong his desire is. He's got a date at midnight with Nosferatu. (laughs) She says, oh no, you must not come across. And he says, I could come back tomorrow during the day. We could talk. And she says, not in the daytime, never in the daytime. Mm. She's not being friendly at all to him, but it doesn't matter. He's still super into her. He thinks about never in the daytime and goes, that's kind of a weird thing to say, Mm. and asks her what she means by this. Because, you know, I could totally come around during the day, talk to your father, make our relationship respectable. We could be friends. And she says, in the nighttime, my father sleeps. In the daytime, I sleep. How could I talk to you or introduce you to my father then? If you came on board this boat in the daytime, you would find my father and you would be sorry. As for me, I would be sleeping. I could never introduce you to my father. Do you see? You sleep soundly, you and your father. Yes, we sleep soundly. And always at different times? Always at different times. We are on guard. One of us is always on guard. We've been hardly used down there in your city, and we have taken refuge here. And we are always, always on guard. And now this is some crazy lying going on. Like It just seems obvious to me that she's totally lying about this stuff. Yeah. But Mort is buying it hook, line, and sinker. Well, it, it communicates the fact that what she's saying is so absurd and that he's going along with it. You know, the author doesn't need to tell you that he's fallen under some spell. Right, exactly. He's so under the spell that he feels badly for her and her father. Uh, the chill comes back and then a smell which has kind of got a hint of death and decay. He thinks to himself, the girl and her father must be used to the smell. How pitiful for the two of them to live there. And then Mort says, look, I don't have a lot of money, but I could help you out, maybe even find you a job. And then she says, fool, do you think you would be helping me to tie me to a desk, to shut me behind doors, away from freedom, away from the delight of doing my own will, of seeing my own way? Never, never. Never would I let you do that. Rather, this old boat, rather a deserted grave under the stars for my home. Mm. And that was another thing. Daryl cut out fool. Oh, he did? I didn't catch that. He cut out fool. And that bugged me, too, because I liked how menacing it was of her to say that and to call him that. And non-human, you know, that's a very... Yeah, exactly. Anyway, this actually connects to him because he now feels like she's a kindred spirit. He doesn't like having his desk job. He wants to be out at night, creeping around, doing creepy stuff. Yeah. I would have been angry with her for, like, being so... (laughs) <laughs> like jumping on my case. I'm like, look, I'm trying to help you out. Like you and your father are living in a barge, a broken barge in the middle of a canal yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. Maybe I can help you. I mean, obviously he wants to help her because he's trying to have sex with her. But yeah. And also it's so specific what she says. I don't want to be tied to a desk, which makes me wonder, does she already know what his life is like? Is she reading his mind somehow and specifically oh. speaking to the office job? Or is this actually from her history? Is she a vampire who used to do data entry? We don't know. We don't know. So he says to her, I just want to serve you any way that you want. And then she asks, do you swear that? 
And he says, I swear it. From this night on, forever, I swear it. And then she likes this. And it says that he must wait a while, not to come aboard the boat, but when the canal finally stops flowing, that she will come to him. They've closed off the canal, and it's slowly draining. When the draining is finished, she'll come, and she will ask him a favor. And he tries to get her to say more, but she's just done talking with him. And the sun is slowly coming up, and so he leaves. Now, he's very tired at work the next day, but it doesn't matter. He continues to visit her. Each night, he would go to the canal and see if she was ready. Sometimes she doesn't even talk to him when he shows up. She just sits there. She's so alien. And you were picking up on the rule about vampires at this point, right? Oh, yeah. With, well, they can't, ghosts. They can't cross I mean, running water. A lot of times, ghosts can't cross running water as well. I've heard that as well. Like any supernatural creature. What did you think about the father at this point, what he was all about? I thought that maybe he was alive, maybe enthralled, or he would know the story of things like... Like he would go, oh, my daughter died 20 years ago. Oh, right. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was either that or he was a ghoul yeah, or something along those lines. Yeah. But he can obviously go about during the day. That's what I was thinking at the time. And well, yeah, but it turns out to be something else. <laughs> yeah. So he wonders what happened to her and her father to make them take refuge in a boat like this. Who was after them? She says, you know, those people in the shacks, they were horrible. But now she feels free, free. The water now is barely moving. Uh, I mean, he's tested it. It doesn't look like it's even moving at all. See, you know that about him testing the water, right? He mm-hmm. says, I threw a scrap of paper into the canal and it whirled and swung a little. So that's great because it gives you a feeling of, you know, motion that we're getting closer to them meeting instead of this yeah. just being repetitive. And also it shows that he's intelligent from a character perspective, like he's testing the flow. So he hasn't yeah. totally lost his mind. And then it also you get some insight into his personality when he says, I will kiss you perhaps when you cross over here, but not unless you let me. Yeah. He's not going to take what he wants. Oh, no, no. He's not a creep. And I think that's in his personality. It's not the spell. When she talks about the houses below the bridge, the houses along the canal, she says the screaming, the reviling and cursing, fear and flight. As you pass by those houses, think how it would be like to be shut in one of them and in fear of your life and then think of them no more. So that also tells you some important clues to her previous life. Mm. When she says fear and flight, she's kind of admitting that she at one point was shut up in one of them and had to run away. Mm. Durleth cut all of that stuff. Oh, come so on. all you really knew from what he has in there is that she doesn't like those houses. But there's none of these clues are there, none of the stuff about his personality, and it doesn't even say that he's testing the water and that it's going to stop moving soon. Cut it all. What a deep egg. Yeah. So the next day, he's feeling really bad at work, and Mort asks his camping buddy, Barrett, if he's ever noticed all those shacks along the canal. And his buddy's like, dude, I know you've got morbid taste, but those houses have a reputation for, you know, like murder and dope. Like people basically go there to kill somebody or to get high, and that's it. So don't investigate them. Don't go walking around there because you will probably get killed. And Mort's like, no, no, I wouldn't do that. But I did hear a story about a young woman and her father who were attacked and they had to run away. And Barrett's like, uh, you know, that sounds kind of like a story about a little kid, a girl that was kidnapped. This wasn't all the papers. This co-worker, he's read all about this kidnapping. Yeah, he says the child's body was found. Part of it was found. It was mutilated. And the people in the house seemed to believe it had been mutilated in order to conceal the manner of its death. There was an ugly wound in the throat. It finally came out. And it, it seemed as if the child might have been bled to death. The old man and his daughter escaped before the police were called. So the father and the daughter escaped and were never seen again. And Mort actually remembers reading the story in the paper. And this chills him. He knows stories of women who kill to satisfy bloodlust, ghosts, specters, vampires. Mm -hmm. Is she a vampire? 
Are they corpses by day and evil spirits by night, roaming around in the form of bats and unclean beasts, killing the body and soul of their victims? And whoever dies of the kiss of the vampire becomes a vampire, and they cannot cross running water. Dun, dun, dun. He's figured it all out pretty quickly once, once that article is shared with him. So he's sad about this, but he knows he's under a spell of some kind, like an enchantment. But he cannot stop himself. He has to go to her. And when he reaches the old barge, he sees that there is now a plank from the barge to the shore. It's time. The canal has finally stopped flowing. He goes to the boat and he hears in the woods behind him someone coming and it's her. Two hands caught me at my neck. The pale face was so near that I felt the warm breath from its nostrils fanning my cheek. And suddenly, all that was wholesome in my perverted nature rose uppermost. I longed for the touch of the red mouth like a dark flower opening before me in the night. I longed for it, and yet more, I dreaded it. I shrank back, catching in a powerful grip the fragile wrists of the hands that strove to hold me. I must not yield to the faintness that I felt stealing over me. Yeah, this writing's kind of hot. Um, yeah? I find it erotic. I know he keeps going, she's a monster, but then he, there's all this other writing that makes her very attractive. When she goes to touch him or grabs her wrist, he looks down the path to the shanties, and then she knows that he knows what's going on. Like, he, yeah. she somehow senses that he knows that she's a, a vampire or a creature, and her kindness turns to hate. Thunder strikes at that moment, and a tempest of rain kicks up, so we've got a big romantic storm suddenly steps out of the story at this point and he talks about how the next part is where things get really crazy right if you're with him so far he asks you just hold on this this is all true but this is where things go totally nuts so he moves away from her but she grabs him and she's strong and she reminds him of his oath his promise to her he says let's just walk away and forget that i disturbed you or your father and then she just laughs at him she says so you do not love me and i hate you fool have I waited these weary months for the water to stop only to go back now? So there's no pretense anymore. She knows he knows. She's a vampire. She's going to make him do what she says. She tells him that when she escaped to the boat, which was in a drained canal at the time, she was sleeping during the day and then the canal was flooded again with water and she was trapped there. Right. So she says, I've been lonely, desolate, starving. Now the whole world shall be mine and by your help. So, man, she's got grand designs. She's yes. not just like some little creepy vampire. She wants to take on the world. That's right. So he's totally her thrall at this point. He has no control over himself. She has him pick her up and carry her across the bridge to the other side of the river where all those campers are. The storm is raging and it's a difficult walk. And this whole unwitting march through the pouring rain is a totally amazing scene in the story. Just the way that he's got to carry her across the bridge and can't stop himself from doing it. There's all sorts of great description. So he sets her down and they go into the woods into an old quarry. Yes. Now, in Durleth's version, they just go straight to the tents on the other side of the river and that's it. They don't take this little diversion into the quarry. That's missing. And Oh, no. Yeah, totally gone. And I'm not kidding. It is the coolest part of the story, what's about to happen. So when they get to the quarry, the girl tells Morton to put his hand into this certain hole and pull out what he finds. She says a human hand is needed to do this. So reaches in there, he finds something, grabs it, he pulls it out. When it comes out, it drops and flips over and it knocks him on the head, stunning him for a bit and he falls to the ground. It's like this huge enchanted stone that she wasn't able to handle. Bang, and hits it. My head, a stabbing agony of pain. Unreal lights flashing before my eyes. I 
I yet knew the reality of the storm that beat me down as I struggled to my feet. I knew the reality of the dark, loathsome shapes that passed me in the dark, crawling out of the orifice in the rock and flapping through the night along the way that led to the pleasure camps. So the caverns I had laid open to the outer world were infested with bats. I had been inside unlit caverns and had heard there the squeaking of the things, felt and heard the flapping of their wings, but never in all my life before had I seen bats as large as men and women. Sick and dizzy from the blow on my head and from disgust, I crept along the way that they were going. If I touched one of them, I felt that I should die of horror. Now at last the storm abated and a heavy darkness made the whole world seem like it was in the inside of a tomb where the tents stood in a long row. The number of monster bats seemed to diminish. It was as though... Horrible thought! They were creeping into the tents with their slumbering occupants. So, vampires? Yeah. Well, we think something like that. In, Dur- in Durleth's version, it's just her, not all of these creatures. They, he cut them all out. Oh. Basically, uh, Mort walks her over to the tents. She goes into one, and then you know they have an encounter there. But in some ways, I can understand his thinking. I don't agree, but I think what he must have thought as an editor was, well, this is really the story of Morton and the girl. You know, why bring all these other creatures into it? Especially because we haven't heard of them before and don't know how or why they got imprisoned in this quarry. But to me, that's exactly why you should leave them in the story. Yes, because absolutely. if I saw where things were going in this story already, but I did not see this coming. And no way. also, it suggests this great backstory. Did she run afoul of these things in the quarry somehow when she was human? Maybe that's how she became a vampire. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a long courtship or relationship like the one she's built with Morton. Were they already imprisoned when this happened? Or was that something her father did after she became a vampire to try and stop the infection mm-hmm. from spreading? And that is so cool because it makes this story a lot more in media res. We see that something else happened before we got here. She has grand designs on taking over the world. This is part of some huge thing. And of course, poor Mort, like the chump that he is, wandered into places that man was not meant to wander. But he says in the beginning, we we don't fear those things anymore like we should. I mean, the running water thing, it kind of just makes her like a run-of-the-mill vampire. But now that this whole thing is happening... And they might be vampires, but they might be demons. We don't really know. We don't know. Because Morton had this crush. Now, the scope of her plan is so huge. It's not just drinking blood. It's yeah. it's basically an alien invasion. Yeah, it's super cool. And I can't believe Daryl cut that out. Yeah, so she lets them all loose on the tents. They're attacking people. Or we think that's what's going on. They're all going into the... But they're not doing it like action. They're like sneaking and creeping into these tents and then getting people. Yeah, and he lost track of her when this all went down, right? There were just all the bat things. and I think she turned into one of them. But he watched, when he gets to the tents, he sees one of the bad things go inside and then through the tent, which is a neat effect, the shadow converts back into the shape of a woman. Again, stuff mm-hmm. that was cut out. When and, and when he sees the shape of the woman, he knows it's her. He hears her say, there's a storm outside, it was terrible, I just needed a place to wait it out. And then he's like, oh no, it's her and she's going to kill these people. So he runs to the tent and he shouts, don't take her in, she's a vampire. <laughs> yeah, everybody needs to wake up. These things aren't human, they aren't bats either. 
They're vampires. And I thought, well, maybe he should have just yelled, hey, everybody run away. There's a flash flood. That might have been a little more reasonable. But we, sure. for some reason, he went with the truth. He's just so freaked out. I mean, he'd been hit on the head. And this, that's I, you know, I don't know what I'd probably be flipping out, too, at this of point. Of course. Plus, he didn't get to Mac on her. No, Which is true. like the, the biggest crime of this whole. <laughs> the people in the tent think he's nuts. His vampire lover, the, the girl, says... Uh, oh, yeah, I saw this guy get hit on the head with a rock. He must be incensed. Right. He's out there. Like all good lies, there's a little truth in there. It's a good yeah. cover story from the vampire lady. So he just gives up and he runs away. The next day, Mort goes to the canal boat and sees that uh, no one could ever live there. No human, because it's just all disgusting and rotted and there's nothing in there. And of course, there is a rotting corpse. And he assumes that is the corpse of her father. Right. He wasn't made into a vampire, and, you know, why not? You know, so many interesting questions. Was he a good guy? Maybe her father was trying to stop her from doing these things. Mm, don't know. But I'm glad that he wasn't like a zombie dude. I like that he's just dead. And that, like, that's just another branch of the story that we don't know anything yeah. about. Back in the city, the news around is that some strange insects or small animals infested the camp. And folks, they didn't actually see them, but a lot of them, most all of them, had these strange wounds on their throats. It sold to the public as maybe it was rats? But the implication is worse because I thought the bat things were just there to kill and slake their thirst because they've been in prison for a long time. Yeah. But they left everybody alive, yeah. which means that they're building an army of vampires. Right. Like you say, this is a world domination scenario. This is not just a meet cute with a hot vampire girl. A lot more <laughs> is going on here. Now, he knows that he's still under her spell and he'll do whatever she wants him to do. But for now, he has control. So he contemplates suicide. So my own death will not be enough. Today I bought supplies for blasting. Tonight I will set my train of dynamite from the hole I made in the cliff where the vampires creep in and out along the row of tents as far as the last one. Then I shall light my fuse. It will be done before dawn. Tomorrow the city will mourn its dead and execrate my name. And then, at last, in the slime beneath the unmoving waters of the canal, I shall find peace. But perhaps... It will not be peace, for I shall seek it midway between the old boat with its cargo of death and the row of dismal houses where a little child was done to death when she first became the thing she is. This is my expiation. Bam, that's the end of the story. Rock solid. Our main character's going to self-sacrifice and go down in history as a crazy person, but doesn't care because it saves all of humankind. He hopes. He hopes, but doesn't know. That's his plan. We don't know if it worked out or not for him. Yeah, might work, might not. So Durleth, or as I like to abbreviate his name sometimes, Durr. <laughs> Let's see what he did with the ending. And I'm just going to tell you what it is, or read a little of it, because I don't want to put Carrie through the pain of having to read it herself. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, Chad, too. I tried to read the Dareleth version, and it just made me angry, so I stopped. Oh, well, I'm going to gin you up then, because what happens is the vampire woman goes into the tent. None of these other beings are with her. Our guy doesn't bother to yell or alarm anyone or anything. He says, there was nothing in the world that I could do in the way of giving an alarm. You can't bolt into a man's tent and warn him against a beautiful woman to whom he is about to make love because she is a vampire. Having myself locked up in an asylum would save no one from the evil I had unwittingly loosed. <laughs> off. That is some <laughs> mansplaining <laughs> awkward phrasing and that was the part where i'm like wait a minute he didn't just shorten this he actually took over the writing yeah. which was confirmed for me one second later when he writes head bent under the rain that fell more quietly now i climbed down to the water's edge the clouds parted and drifted away horizonward as i stood long in thought and the gibbous moon shone far and dim mm -hmm. behind a mist veil 
So even in his rewriting of Evelyn Worrell, he doesn't try to change up his style. Mm-hmm. He desperately attempts to imitate H.P. Lovecraft, as he always does, <sighs> with the gibbous moon and the hyphenate noun, this mist veil. And then, instead of this heroism of self-sacrifice, he ends the story by turning the heroism into dumb male fantasy, Robert E. Howard-style heroism. It says, she has spared me the vampire kiss, but I will have that from her, even as I save others from her curse. I have earned it with my soul. I will know that dark ecstasy, and I will ensure that no other knows it after me. So I guess he's going to force her to kiss him now. It is strange how life leads one through the happy paths of childhood and of youth to an ordained destiny. I had a young uncle who loved tales of old knighthood, as I have loved the macabre. He made me a sword out of oak on a happy day in my boyhood. And when he went to volunteer in a war of one of the little peoples, he tipped the sword with a point. He fell in his first action far on foreign soil. The sword hangs on my wall. I have never taken it down since he went away. The dawn broke at last. I did not see them go, but I know that her victim lover will have carried her back across the bridge over the rushing water. So now the, ro- the water never stopped flowing in his story. Uh-huh. For since she is what she is... She must go back to the old canal boat. She must sleep until tonight. Which is, what? Yeah. It violates the rule that this whole damn story set up. This thing that she was trying to be free when the water stopped flowing. And, and this is how it ends. And there I will come to her then. I will take the tipped sword and I will hold it behind me in the shadows. I have come to be with you forever, I will say. There can be no other woman's face before my eyes. Only yours, heart-shaped and pale and beautiful. I would leave heaven and go to hell for your kiss and be glad. Kiss me now. And then I will take the wooden sword, for wood is fatal to all vampires of whatever age. I will take the wooden sword and I will dot, dot, dot. And that's the end of his terrible rewrite. So Everill has got Morton doing some really badass stuff. He's rounding up dynamite. He's blowing up the alien invaders. But Durr's big trick is Morton's going to hide a wooden sword that we've never heard of before until this last couple of paragraphs. He's going to hide it behind his back in the dark. So she's managed to hypnotize him for weeks, learn about his backstory, all this stuff, get her to carry her across a river to victims and everything. But she's not going to be suspicious at all when he's standing there with his hands behind his back, hiding a sword. So stupid. And I won't keep going on because I've complained enough, but I really did legit get mad about it. Yeah. So please, folks, don't read the online version of this. We'll link out to the anthology. If you're going to read the story, read it there. And I wanted to do one last indulgent reading here before we go okay those that have read lovecraft's long series of poems fungi from yogoth may remember that there is a poem in there it's the 24th and it's called the canal i'm guessing that it was suggested by the story listen somewhere in dream there is an evil place where tall deserted buildings crowd along a deep black narrow channel reeking strong of frightful things whence oily currents race Lanes with old walls half-meeting overhead wind off to streets one may or may not know, and feeble moonlight sheds a spectral glow over long rows of windows, dark and dead. There are no footfalls, and the one soft sound is of the oily water as it glides under stone bridges and along the sides of its deep Flume to some vague ocean bound. None lives to tell when that stream washed away, its dream lost region from the world of clay. Mm. Kind of seems like of a piece with this, so. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Thank you again, Carrie Getz, for the excellent readings. I also want to thank our patrons. Yes, I want to thank our patrons, of course. One of them, Mike C., he says he rejoined Patreon just for HP Podcraft, which I appreciate. Oh. 
And he also had written us uh, an email that said, if you read this, the only thing I ask is that you say, happy anniversary, Rita, from your awesome husband, Mike. It's not her anniversary, but that's what makes the request such a bargain. I, I don't know what that means, but uh, happy anniversary, Rita. Happy anniversary, Rita. I really hope Rita is actually his wife and we're not complicit in a stalking, but... Oh, God. <laughs> wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> Fool me twice. Anyway, who else have we got to thank? I'd like to thank Dr. Sinwar. I want to thank Joshua Eve. I'd like to thank Matthew Thebus. I want to thank Elizabeth Campbell Tompkins. I'd like to thank Don Motley. Carla Leo, thank you. I'd like to thank Adam M. Siegel. Jeffrey Stinson, you are the cat's pajamas. I'd also like to thank Angelina Brown. And Jennifer Dolge, thank you so much. That's all we've got for this week. We'll be back with the uh, Peter Fleming werewolf story, The Kill, next week. Mm. That's Ian Fleming's handsome older brother. (laughs) Handsomer than him, I believe. I guess that shouldn't count. Anyway, we'll be back next time with that on the HP Lovecraft Literary (laughs) Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and we're at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.